Today's reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, which can be found on page 1002 of these few Bibles. That's Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 to 13, starting at verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt round his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time... Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. This is God's word. Chris, thank you. I'm feeling particularly short this morning. Everyone else on stage appears to be six foot three (laughs) or higher um, between you lot. Um, anyway, other sizes are available. I'm one of them. Um, let me pray as uh, we jump in to look at this together. Our great God of Father, here is um, the beginning, just the beginning, as Mark describes it, of the momentous news about Jesus, the Messiah. And no matter how familiar we are with some of these truths or how bizarre they seem to us, Father, please, would your spirit be at work to deepen our understanding and our wonder at this Messiah, we pray. Amen. Now, uh, last weekend, just on the website, the website, the BBC website, I read about um, uh, Jen Brown. Uh, She's an Aussie zookeeper. We may have picked a little picture of Jen. Um, She's an Aussie zookeeper, and being a Brit, I always like reading about how sort of violent animals are in Australia. It's a perverse thing that Brits love to read about. But anyway, um, it was sort of a sweet story that uh, three years ago she was mauled within an inch of her life 
And then last weekend, uh, she went back to work for the first time in three years, back in the lion enclosure. And like, ooh, not, not nervous about that then, was the obvious question put to Jen Brown. Well, a little bit, but I've learned more than ever. They're not tame. They're not my lions. They're lions. Well, okay, yeah, that's good. I mean, she wasn't quite as daft as uh, this man. Uh, this obviously, this, you go on a website, and then it says all oh, follow-up stories. Uh, Michael, or Mikkel Prasek, uh, he's a Czech guy, and uh, he kept a lion in his garden as a pet. But they're not pets. They're not tame. And so, tragically, yes, it killed him. And they clicked to another link, and um, in uh, May of this year, uh, in a, a zoo in Ghana, a man clambered into, over the fence, and clambered into the, uh, the lion enclosure and was killed. Um, and um, I, I know this is all tragic, but this man, he did put a slight smile on my face. He's the uh, Ghanaian minister of zoos, I don't know. Anyway, he was the, the, the government representative put up. And in, in this sort of most beautiful, mellifluous Ghanaian accent said, um, you know, I won't, I won't, but why, why would he do that? Why would he do that? If you enter an enclosure where there is a lion and lioness and three cubs, they will kill you. I do not understand. My advice to anyone is do not enter an enclosure with lions and their cubs. <laughs> Azor delivers this pet, dead party thinking, it's good advice. I'll, as a note to self, I must uh, remember that one. Don't do that. But why? Oh, we know that, don't we? If anyone sensible knows that, or can you just forget? I don't suppose the Wakefields are going to, you know, strap the kids in in the back and just say, well, let's just get a pet lion on the back seat with them and see how that goes. And yet somehow you can just forget or become complacent. They're not tame. Why do I say that? Because for some of us, as we um, turn to look at Mark's gospel and chapters one to four preoccupy most of our term, uh, it is familiar. But as I've looked at this again, and particularly acutely at Jesus' call for repentance, I've been struck, he's not tame. Actually, what he's asking of me is enormous. And my desire, tendency, perhaps, to domesticate him down a little bit. You can't do that when you read through Mark's gospel. He's unwilling to be that domesticated. And as we spend time here, I think we'll see again and again, we don't fit Jesus into our life. We fit into his. We don't fit Jesus into our life in the back seat. We fit into his. Everything changes for him. 
Now, look, there are three, I've scribbled it down, the little table, uh, some will be familiar. There are three main sections to the book of Mark, and in time we'll, we'll go through them. In, is in Galilee, on the road, and then in Jerusalem, and, and each one has a little different question. But verses 1 to 13, I do think function as a prologue, they're introducing. And there are two quirks, if I can put it in that way, of, uh, of verses 1 to 13. So we get uh, three references to the Spirit, four references to the wilderness. The wilderness never comes up again in the whole of Mark's gospel, so there's certainly something here about wilderness, and the Spirit only comes up three other time. So this is the most intense passage on both of those. So we're going to allow those aspects to structure our thoughts. It look a little bit like this. We're going to think about uh, this Jesus then, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. He was promised to you. He can place his spirit in you. And he entered the wilderness for you. Three truths that uh, Mark wants us to know in this prologue. Before we get into the content, the, the, the guts of Mark's gospel, he was promised to you, he can place his spirit in you, and he entered the wilderness for you. Those three. And I think if we get them, we'll start to realize again, or for the first time, I don't fit Jesus into my life. I fit into his. First of these verse, uh, seven verses, uh, Jesus, he's the God who was promised to you. So big reveal at the beginning of Mark's gospel, chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. Good news, momentous news, big announcement. We'll think more about that next time. He's the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed king that the Old Testament had spoken about. He's the son of God there. I think, again, a title rather than um, uh, the fact that he's God the son. But verse 2 tells us how we're meant to interpret these big titles over Jesus. What is the, is the beginning of all this and a great roll of titles. What are we meant to do with them? Ah, well, here's how you're meant to hear that news. Verse 2, as it's written in... Isaiah the prophet, actually the footnote will tell you it's Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3 put together. But as it is written, this is the one and these are the events promised hundreds of years before. Now, brief tangent, this isn't Mark's point. <laughs> but even that is extraordinary. He comes on, the, this, John the Baptist, and Mark begins his gospel rather and says... These are the events that you've waited hundreds of years for. This is the man you've waited hundreds of years for. No, it's, a, it's, it's a detail, it's a tangent. That is unique. I mean, to say something really obvious, uh, when he walked this planet, no one was waiting for the Buddha. No one was waiting for Muhammad to come. No one predicted them. No one was waiting for the latest political messiah, whoever that may be, no, or the latest wellness guru, whoever that may be for you. This is unique, that for centuries, one is coming, 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 he's here. There's no other figure in history like that. But Mark is concerned to put together these two quotes from Malachi and Isaiah 40 to understand what is going to happen now that this one, this Messiah is on the scene. Uh, Malachi 3, the stress, if you read it uh, in, in Malachi chapter 3, God had promised he will send a spokesman, a messenger just ahead of the Messiah who will refine the people, remove the dross of their 
self-interest, selfish behavior, spiritual apathy. There's going to be a refining, a cleansing, a transformation. And Isaiah 40, God himself will come and bring forgiveness of sins and comfort, both. Mark puts these at the beginning to say, look, uh, just by the way, as you read through this account I've written up, expect both. Expect, yes, a, a savior who brings comfort, who can forgive your sins. Expect one who will change you, refine you, leave you never the same again. Expect both of those. So no surprise that John's message is, we're told, uh, John the Baptist appeared, verse four, in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Oh, your sins can be forgiven. There's forgiveness. Anything you've done wrong. And there's repentance. A complete reorientation of your life. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, that's a biblical word, of course, repentance. As we work through Mark, we just have to dig a bit harder and we think more again next week. It really is absolutely radical. Look, I remember being a young Christian and being taught uh, repentance is a bit like this. And there's some truth to this, okay? It's, it, it's true. Uh, it's just not enough. So repentance is, you know, we walk away from God, we walk away from God, we walk away from God, and we turn around and start walking to him. It's a change of direction. Rather than walking away, we say, no, I trust you now, and we walk towards him. That is true. The only problem with it, there's this changing direction has no um, moral element to it. Personally, I have an appalling sense of direction, and I ha- therefore have to change where I'm going all the time. You know, walking, walking, walking. Uh, where's Google? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and other apps are available. Uh, and you ju- I constantly have to change direction. There's nothing immoral about that. It's just incompetent, right? That's all it is. Um, but repentance has a moral element to it. It's a little bit more, I, I've been working in the Kremlin for decades. I've helped plan war. I've helped uh, uh, deliberately uh, allocate resources for armies to, to invade. I, I, I've overseen destruction, um, death of civilians. Now I quit and I move to the West and I learn a new language and new customs and new culture. And I see now that what I was doing before, I didn't see it at the time. Now I see God, how destructive it was. Now, it's not perfect, because no doubt if you did that thing, you go, okay, there's much which is great about the West and some things which are a bit quirky. Uh, no doubt about that. But the Christian, you become a Christian and the life of the Christian being one of repentance is I was embedded in one worldview in one pattern of thought. I've come out of it now, and I'm learning it's very different to be a follower of Jesus. Of course, you keep drifting back. Is the, whole, it, the Christian life is one of repentance, being shaped, shaped, shaped as a follower of Jesus. But it's a complete reorientation, a very wonderful one. And so uh, Mark begins this gospel by saying, look, here is the God who was promised to you. Following him, yeah, there's forgiveness, come back to that, but repentance. Life will change. It cannot be the same again. 
Well, how could that be? It'll happen because, second little thing, he can place his spirit in you, verses uh, 7 to 12. Uh, He's the God who's promised you. He wants you to repent. He can do that because he can place his spirit in you, verses 7 to 12. Now, Mark wants to underline, I think this is why you get these multiple references here. Mark wants to underline the complete newness, the this is the moment you've all been waiting for uh, with these references to the Spirit, as I say, three here and only three then in the rest of uh, Mark's gospel completely. So verses 9 to 12, let's start there, then we drift back to verse 8. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven, you are my Son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. So Mark here describes the supernatural events at the baptism of Jesus. Thousands of people have come. John is the big deal. He's the most exciting thing that's happened for years. Thousands have come from Jerusalem to the wilderness. That's weird. I mean, Jerusalem had been the center. Everyone had gone. But now the flow has been reversed. Everyone is exiting Jerusalem, going to the wilderness. Uh, But why is Jesus getting baptized for repentance? Because he's done nothing wrong. Well, he wants to identify with humanity fully. But this is very different. Obviously, there's three little miraculous things. First, heaven is torn open. It's a vivid description, isn't it? Heaven is torn open. We like the word. It's Greek, schizo, schism, schizophrenic, um, divided, torn, ripped, tangentially. Only one other time in uh, Mark's gospel, you get the word. It's when the curtain is torn open. Uh, at the death of Jesus. This is dramatic. Heaven is torn open. Cinema, the moment. Uh, lots of films are pretty boring, aren't they? I mean, there's some great films at the cinema, but the, the, um, the sort of sci-fi fantasy genre now is, seems somewhat obsessed with, oh no, there's been a, a hole has appeared in our universe and you can cross to another one. There's been a rupture in the space-time continuum. I'm way off piste. Um, and now, look, creatures from another world have entered into this one. There's, there's, oh, you can go from this universe to the others in the multiverse, whatever. And um, uh, it's all, well, you might like such things. Uh, good for you. You know, fiction is good. Um, but, um, but here it's for real. It's a very dramatic description. Heaven is torn open because now the supernatural is entering into this world. And the Spirit descends. Throughout the Bible, God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Here, I think the emphasis is, again, fulfillment. Lots of passages in Isaiah. Isaiah 11, a wonderful king will come to transform this world, and the Spirit of God will be upon him think is the emphasis here. And a voice speaks from heaven. You're my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. Now that is not news to Jesus. Oh really? I always wondered. I had an inkling. Wasn't so sure. Uh, Oh I'm so pleased you're pleased. Um, no, 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 no. Jesus knows this. The voice is for our benefit. This is my son uniquely. I love him because I'm relational. 
not distant. And I'm well pleased with him. That is our God. He loves, he takes pleasure. He's involved, he's not unfeeling. So heaven is torn open. Uh, We know that this Jesus is the promised one. He'll do unprecedented things. And the thing that gets stressed that he'll do for you and me in this little passage is he'll baptize with the Spirit. So just, uh, we flip back up again then. Verse 7, John appears and says, After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, in the culture of the day, if you're affluent, of course you wouldn't uh, untie your own shoes. Why would you? You'd walk through the dusty streets of the, of the village or the town and you'd arrive at your destination and you'd put your feet up and the slaves would undo your sandals and uh, take them off and wash them. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. You know, you can have a slave and a master, but this one... I'm not even worthy to be a slave who takes off his shoes. The gulf between us is enormous. Which is a surprise, no doubt, to the original audience because John is the big shot. He's he's the big news of the day. People are flooding to see John. And he says, between me and this one, there is a chasm. You know, I guess in the 21st century, John is packing out whatever you want to go for, the O2, Wembley Stadium, every night, thousands of thousands are pouring in to hear him and see what he's teaching. And he said, okay, there's, there's one coming, and if you'll forgive me in a modern idiom, I'm not even worthy to wipe his bum. Much higher than me. But what is the contrast in particular that gets emphasized? I mean, there are lots of reasons why Jesus is greater than John, but the stress here is, power. So verse, verse 8, I baptize you with water, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, those are not natural opposites. You can do both. You really can. The contrast is external, internal. I can do an external thing, wash you. This one will change you internally. I can do a physical thing. He will do a spiritual thing. That's the contrast. John is saying, look, I can perform a ceremony to uh, reinforce the decision you're, you're, you're making this morning. I mean, in baptism, I can give you, says, says John, much like a wedding service. There's a decision making and taken, and there are some symbolic actions, exchanging of rings, baptizing in water. Yeah, yeah, I can do that. But Jesus, he'll change you inside. No one else does that. When you become a Christian, the Spirit of God comes and dwells within you to to transform you. To transform you. To enable you to repent. To reorientate everything in your life. So John says, yeah, I can preach, but I can't transform your heart. Only Jesus could do that. Hey, look, I can stand up here this morning. I, I, can, I can preach to you. I can't change your heart. Only Jesus can do that. If you want to, if you want to change, if you want your life to move from 
self-absorption, habits that you know are destructive. Only Jesus can change your heart. I mean, you can pick up 12 rules for life. You can pick up here are habits that will transform you. They may be of some use, but only Jesus can change your heart. Only he can radically enable you to live differently. And that's what's being promised here. John says, hey, look, it's great you're here for repentance, everyone. And it's great you're making like a 1st of January New Year's resolution. That's great. And I can help you underline that. But I can't change you. Jesus can change you. So look, he's the God who has promised you. He can place his spirit in you last. He entered the wilderness for you. So verses 12 and 13 uh, uh, marks a very brief account of uh, the temptation of Jesus. But verse 12, once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness, that's uh, the active element, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Now again, this makes more sense with the backdrop of the Old Testament. The wilderness is a place, I mean, we might think it's nice. You live in central London, have a wilderness weekend. Oh, lovely. Um, Depending on what country you are, you know, I'll go for a walk in the bush. Lovely. I'm going for a hike in the mountains. Lovely. No. Wilderness, bad, biblically. Uh, Wilderness is a place of tempting. Wilderness is a place you are thrown if you get things wrong. Okay? You've got to bear that in mind. Wilderness, not good. So, of course, famously uh, in the Old Testament, Israel, God's people, the nation Israel, sent into the wilderness for 40 years. And you read Deuteronomy 8, what's going on there? And the Lord says, I sent you into the wilderness to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep my commandments. The wilderness, dangerous place, wilderness, place of testing. Will you obey the Lord? Now, it's September. I had uh, plenty of people move jobs uh, this time of year. Some will be moving to London uh, for the first time. And uh, typically, you, you move jobs and you, you, or you start your post, uh, job post-university and uh, you sign your contract. And, and um, I won't get the details right here, but anyway. You sign your contract and commonly there'll be a probationary period. Three months, six months. I mean, if you're like being super well paid, 12 months or something, you know. But there's a probationary period. And uh, we all know that. And, you know, everyone behaves themselves very well on the probation. Uh, and then ask for holiday and, and all those things. Um, and can I work from home, etc. when probation's over? That sort, of, that sort of stuff, isn't it? But um, at the end of the probationary period, you're in. You're in. The period of sort of testing is over. And you get much fuller rights as workers. You're in, and you know the full. You're in, um, and um, you're, you're, the company's stuck with you, or is delighted to have you, whatever it may be. But you're in. So in the wilderness, God's people, Israel, were on probation, and they failed, and so they're out. They don't get to enter the promised land for years. Well, the first failure in the Bible, the first probation, is Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Are you going to obey? One thing, one rule, you've got one rule to keep. And they fail. And so they're kicked out into the wilderness. They've failed. And death and disease and destruction and disaster enter the world because of their failure. 
They were on probation and failed. There's a sense in which every single one of us, we enter this world and the question is, will you obey the Lord's commandments? Will you trust him? Will you follow him? And we fail. We don't trust. Here, Mark chapter 1, what's recorded is Jesus enters the wilderness. Jesus enters the probation and faces hostile wild animals, but more acutely, he faces the temptation of Satan. Will he obey God? Having been baptized with the other humans to represent humanity, will this one obey? Yes. He passes for himself, for us too. So this doesn't quite work. But you can imagine someone, they're on a grad scheme then, they, they, they move to London, or start work tomorrow perhaps, in some, whatever you choose, some large accountancy firm. And uh, in their first week, they manage to offend a key client and somehow release a virus into the computer system that brings down the whole network and uh, also send key confidential information to a rival in week one. How am I doing? How am I doing? You see the door? Just walk through and keep going. They're out. They fail. They completely fail. But imagine, thought experiment, all of a sudden the managing partner comes down and says, this person is a screw-up. But I will pay for everything to get fixed. I will go and grovel at the rival and say, give us back and don't steal our information. I will grovel to the key client. I'll absorb all the reputational damage. I'll do it all. I'll make it right so they can stay. Why would you do such a thing for an idiot? Why would they? Jesus faces temptation. He passes the probation and says, I'll do it as a representative for all those humans who have failed. He passed where we fail. He resisted temptation where you and I don't. And as we'll see, as we walk our way through Mark's gospel, having got through this, having resisted Satan's temptation, chapter 2, now he can forgive sins. Chapter 3, now he says, I, I, I've bound up Satan. I don't need to worry about him. It's the key moment of test here in chapter 1. We fail. Jesus steps in and says, I can obey for you. I can enter the wilderness for you, pass the temptations that come for you. Now, of course, uh, before we finish on that, if we're Christians, are we still tempted? Yes, of course we are. What do we do? I enjoyed reading this. Uh, Samuel Rutherford is writing 500 years ago, really, but um, uh, a Puritan writer, he says, imagine this. Imagine what should you do? So temptation comes to you and you're assailed by Satan. What should, what should you say? He said, here's what you should say. Satan, you must argue with Christ if you'd attack me. For he has taken my heart to heaven where it is safe. And you can assail me and I may fail. But my heart is secure there. It's very sweet. But very true. <coughs> Satan, you need to talk to him. Because he's got my back. He's taken my heart to heaven. It's secure there. 
Christ has entered the wilderness and obeyed God for us. We can't be sacked by God. That is just the beginning, says Mark. A few things I need you to know at the beginning. But before I get going, says Mark, it is gospel. Could I just... This Jesus that I'm going to tell you about, this Messiah that was predicted, he won't fit into your life. Uniquely, he's been promised for centuries. Uniquely, he can place his spirit in you to absolutely transform you. Uniquely, he's entered the wilderness and obeyed where you fail. So we think next time he's going to call you to repent and believe. But that changes everything. It's just the beginning, he says, of this good news about Jesus. But you don't fit him into your life. You don't squeeze him into the back seat amongst other stuff. You fit into him. That's what you should expect. And he'll change you to do that. And he's paid for you when you fail. But that's what repentance looks like in Mark chapter 1. That's the beginning of the good news. Let's pray together. Our Father, we could sometimes be caught by familiarity. Actually, whether we'd call ourselves a Christian or not, familiarity with spiritual truths, Words, Jesus, Messiah, repent, sin. Lord, would we hear you rightly this morning? As we thought earlier, would you open our eyes so that we can see these truths clearly? That this is the coming of the Lord Jesus is transformative. It is the event that absolutely the world revolves around. And that his coming is not just purely interesting comfortable, but it's absolutely transforming. Lord, would we see him rightly? So we don't just try and fit him, around, fit him into our lives and our ambitions, but that our lives would be orientated around him. We're thankful that he's the one who's obeyed in our place. We're thankful and amazed that he can transform our hearts. Father, would we let him do that so that our lives fit in with his great purposes, we ask in his name. Amen.